if you're dealing with IBS and you're really stuck at a road between should I add foods, should I cut out food, should I eliminate, it really comes down to what do, what does your history look like, what things have you tried in the past, what things that have worked, what hasn't worked, and really what is your current relationship with food. Welcome to Gut Check Radio, the health and wellness podcast giving you the confidence to trust in your gut. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Belden, a board-certified chiropractic physician and functional medicine practitioner. And just for those of you who are aware, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only and are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition and do not apply any of this information you hear in this podcast without first speaking with your physician. Welcome back to Gut Check Radio, all of my friends out there. This one episode is going to be different, and I'm going to start doing these episodes released in the middle of the week, so typically I released longer episodes on Friday, whether they be interviews or very nuanced dives down interesting topics, whether it be food sensitivities, antibiotics, and gut health, but I realized at some point I need to release more content, or I should release more content that's a little more quick and to the point, down and dirty. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll do studies, and we'll reference the particular methods and the findings, and here... And these little short, quip podcasts are just going to be, hey, tell me tell me what I need to do about gut health. Tell me what I need to know. Tell me what things can I take away and start doing right now in my life. And the inspiration for this podcast really comes from either questions like in public, could be from patients, so from patient encounters, some questions that they come up with that are that are very good questions that I think deserve to be spoken about on a podcast, or just questions I've had with with everyday people outside of my clinical practice. And this this question is all about when it comes to diet for IBS, there's lots of conflicting information out there, whether it be social media, blog posts, and you know we've all been on TikTok, and I'm sure our friends have all sent us TikToks, and then they know when we're dealing with our own health issues, where we don't know if we hear elimination diets are fantastic, we hear I should you know dairy's good, actually wait dairy's not so good, oh gluten's horrible, actually we need more whole grains, so there's just there's so many different sides of the coin that are being put out there, and really, you know when I think about it, nutrition is so. People try to make it black and white, and it is one giant bar of gray. It's one giant bar of nuance, and the reason we try and say it as if it is black and white is so you can draw attention. That's really what it is when it really comes down to the nuance, and like I said in the intro to this podcast, it really comes down to your history, what things you've done, what things you've tried, really what things you haven't done, because I really think the issue with a lot of the information for IBS out there regarding nutritional practices is it's too blanket, especially what some of you may have received from a healthcare practitioner of the blanket advice of, oh, just eat more fiber, just just add psyllium husk, or you know, take prebiotics, or actually you know, reduce fiber, or just take magnesium, add some chia seeds, cut out sugar. The blanket advice really doesn't work because in our country, we don't have an information problem. There's information is ubiquitous. What we need is accountability and coaching and support, and that's really what we are lacking in our current situation. And I think to best demonstrate this issue of, hey, how do I know, should I reduce foods, or should I include foods for IBS, I'm going to give you all two different patients that had that came in with the exact same IBS-type complaints, and how with one, one of them, we used a more, we did use more of a reduction approach regarding food, but I'll get into why it, it was more than just a reduction approach. And in the other patient, we actually used huge emphasis on inclusion, and we were able to really achieve the same clinical results. So... We're going to have our patient be Melissa, and Melissa came to us dealing with cramping, pain, and bloating, and alternating bowel movements. It was, she was mostly on the constipated front, and then we're going to talk about our other patient, Hannah. Same exact type symptoms. The big difference is in Melissa, we decided to focus on 
reducing or rotating certain foods. Rotating is probably the better word. And in Hannah, we decided to be very inclusive and really add foods to her nutritional plan. And there were three big things that separated these two people and what allowed us to decide being more inclusive versus for elimination style. The first thing was their history. You know, Melissa came to us having been health conscious for at least over a decade. She had been tracking her macros. She was, I'd call her a fitness fanatic, and she also worked in healthcare. So she was incredibly knowledgeable. She had tried all sorts of different fiber supplements, tried prebiotics. She'd even tried probiotics, would get some minor benefit, but really nothing that was very lasting. And then you contrast that to Hannah, who really was new to her health journey. It was over only over the last couple months before she came to start seeing us that she actually realized, oh, hey, I, food impacts the way I feel. And she started to make different changes and started to try and clean up her diet a little bit. So what you really have is someone who had been health conscious, nutritionally conscious for over 10 years versus someone who had only been nutritionally conscious for a couple months and you know really still gaining so much knowledge regarding her nutritional consciousness. So already right there, the more health conscious someone is, the more I'm likely to automatically think we might need to rotate certain foods. And the more someone is new to this whole world of holistic, alternative, functional, natural healthcare, and is new to the idea that, hey, food can really be used as for healing, that's when I really will focus more on inclusion. So that's the first really big takeaway from today is if, if you've been health conscious for a while, it might need to be a rotational style to your approach regarding specific foods. And if you're pretty new to this, I really think you should focus on inclusion and things to include. So that's the first part was their, was their history. The second part was really their current diet. So what they currently came to eating us with. And Melissa, who's been health conscious for years, was eating no processed foods, was essentially eating all whole foods, was eating a lot, and this is a really big point here, was eating a lot of cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and beans. Those are really her primary vegetable and fiber sources during the week. And we'll get into in a second why that was not shocking for her to tell me that. And why actually when she told me that, I was I was relieved because I, I sort of knew where we would go first. And we're going to contrast that to Hannah, again, our, who was very new, new to the old world of health consciousness. And I would say still at the time when she started seeing us, about 20 to 30% of her nutrition was still from processed foods. She, she was eating out. She worked in the food service industry, so it was very easy to get access to that. And she had just started tracking macros probably over the past month. So we got Hannah over here who's just learning really how many carbs are in certain foods, how depressing it is to weigh out a serving of peanut butter and realize what 190 calories of a nut butter actually looks like. I remember that the first time I did that, I remember of all the things I'd ever weighed, that just made me so sad. And that made me want to put away the food scale so, so much. But I, it really did because at the time, my gosh, I was probably having three to four servings of nut butter every time I was consuming it. And so that, that was very enlightening versus we contrast that with Melissa who knows she, she's so good at eyeballing now. She could, she can dang near get it exact without having to actually weigh it. She still was weighing it just because it was easy for her and it it's sort of gave her this sense of control. But like I talked about with Melissa, who's very health conscious, been tracking her macros, she was eating a lot of these cruciferous vegetables like your cauliflowers, your Brussels sprouts, your asparaguses, because we're told so often that these cruciferous vegetables are so great for us. They have so many good compounds. And while for the most part that is very true, there is one particular population of people who in the overconsumption Again, the overconsumption of those foods can lead to symptoms. 
and that's people with IBS. That's because these foods are what's called high FODMAP. Now, some of you, I've talked about the FODMAPs on this podcast previously, and you know the what it is is it's carbohydrates that are very they're said to be difficult for our gut to digest, and they're actually digested very rapidly. And when they're digested, which means really, really fast, and when they're digested as fast as they are, our gut bacteria use them. They take in these fast digested nutrients, and they create compounds as a byproduct. A lot of these compounds can create gas, bloating, distension, and that gas that they create can actually alter the bowel habits that we have. So you can make methane, which people associate with cows, but methane will actually slow down the gut and can lead to constipation. Or they could make more hydrogen or even hydrogen sulfide, which could actually lead to speeding up of gut motility and diarrhea. So when, when she told me that she was eating cauliflower and Brussels sprouts every single day, and she literally said, yeah, I eat them every day, if not two to three times a day, that automatically made me think, okay, it's not that these foods are bad. It's that I think to use putting water in a cup analogy, with you eating these high FODMAP foods so frequently, I think at some point you're just putting too much water into your GI cup that's spilling over into symptoms. So really, that was another huge indication with us for Melissa to focus on rotation. And hey, maybe for a couple weeks, we rotate away from these really, really high FODMAP foods, in her case, cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, and we really rotate in some leafy greens, kale, arugula, spinach. But you need to be careful if you're going to if you're going to take away food, especially if you're, that's going to lead to net net you reducing fiber. And what was great in Melissa's instance is that she continued to track her macros and track her fiber intake. So what we had her to do was double, if not triple, the amount of chia seeds she was having. Chia seeds have actually been very well studied to help with constipation, which is partially what she was dealing with. And Part of it's because they're soluble fibers, so they're they're digested a little a little more slowly than a lot of these higher FODMAP foods. And we also had her eat kiwis more. Kiwis have actually been studied to be effective for constipation. So between adding in kiwis, doubling up on the chia seeds, rotating from a lot of the cruciferous family to more of the leafy green family for a couple weeks, that really led me to believe, hey, rotation away because of the high amount of cruciferous vegetable consumption. We'll go back to Hannah's case. And like she said, she had just started tracking macros. To me, that's really when they're still learning about food, that's not the time to start geeking out over, hey, you need to stop stop eating these fruits and vegetables because she just learned that they were good for her. And in her case, that was another cue. Hey, we got to focus on inclusion. Last thing I really consider when deciding whether to eliminate versus include foods in people's nutrition, and this is by far the most important, is their relationship with food. Coming from someone such as myself who has dealt with severe binge eating disorder and even ARFID, which is really this idea of avoidant restricted food behaviors where you intentionally avoid not eating quote unquote bad foods. And anytime you eat these quote unquote bad foods, it kind of leads you to binge. So you restrict and then it ultimately creates this binging cycle. So my relationship with food has not been great. It's something I'm always working on. So I, I'm very keen on that. I'm very aware when working with people of where they're at. And in Melissa's case, who had been really health conscious for a long time, she had a great relationship with food. Because she was also a fitness fanatic, she actually looked as as food, at food, excuse me, more as fuel than actually something to help her, help her mood or quote-unquote stress eater. Versus in Hannah's instance, she was a stress eater. And this is why it's so important to get a history. When you talk with her, you realize that she grew up in a household where her parents were always dieting. 
she grew up in an era where her where Atkins was really at its peak, and it was low carb. This Atkins points net carb. So her parents had so many of these high protein, high fat, essentially keto before it was cool foods around her house. There was lots of nuts, lots of these like high sugar alcohol protein bars, which can have their own ramifications for the GI. But in her case, she dealt with that as a teenager, where your relationship with food is so impactful on your your future relationship with food when you're a teen. So knowing those two things, knowing that Melissa had a great relationship with food and did not give me indication of binge eating or avoidant restricted food behavior led me to think, hey, I think she could actually benefit and she could handle, she could emotionally and mentally handle rotating away or even eliminating certain foods versus in Hannah's case, her relationship with food was still very much being unpacked and being dealt with. And I just want to say I, I am not an expert in eating disorders just because I've gone through it does not make me an expert. There are people who have lots of training and how to deal with people. There's lots of great therapists out there who really know how to unpack and get to the root cause of where this came from. But as a person who's working on gut health, that's really important for me to know is their prior relationship with food. And I think this is where some well-intentioned clinicians go wrong is they look at someone in Hannah's case and they go, oh, she's eating 30% of her diet is processed food. Just cut that out and you'll feel fantastic. Well, yes, in theory, that makes so much sense. In practice, it couldn't be further from the truth. If you try and reduce someone who has a history of an eating disorder or, or who does not have a great relationship with food, you're probably going to make things worse. So if you're listening out there and you're the person who feels like your relationship with food isn't great, you're you're stress eating, you really look to food for comfort at times of uncomfort, A, I would I really encourage you to seek out a therapist who specializes in eating disorders and eating behaviors because that will that will do so much for you than, than any supplement or any specific dietary protocol out there. So in Melissa's case, like I said, we used sort of a, a food rotation approach and we really upped her amount of animal foods because we, from our clinical experience, switching someone to a sort of animal-based diet when they are dealing with lots of digestive symptoms and they're already health conscious in the short term, again, this is very therapeutic, this is not something forever, can really do wonders for improving GI symptoms. And in someone like Hannah's case, who is really new to the world of health and nutrition, having her focus more on whole food plant sources, getting more diversity, you know, trying to get her to more than 30 different kinds of fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains, beans, and legumes in a week, was really what she needed, and then also a huge emphasis on protein, in order to get her gut where it could be. And I think what's so cool from this story is you have two people with the same symptoms, same gut symptoms. We use two completely different approaches, and yet we achieve the same result. And long-term for both of these patients, as I'm still working with them, the approach will differ slightly. My bias and my sort of philosophy long-term for the gut is we really want to be able to tolerate as much diversity as possible. It's just that sometimes when someone is really health-conscious, when is eating cruciferous vegetables or lots of citrus fruits or lots of wheat multiple times per day every single day and they have a great relationship with food you want to consider rotating you want to consider even eliminating and if you're very new to this world of health and nutrition a lot of your diet is still processed food and your history and relationship with food is not great i really think you should focus on what things can i include to make my gut health better Thank you all for trusting me to be a part of your day. If you enjoyed the show and found it informative or entertaining, we invite you to share the love by leaving a five-star rating or review on your podcast platform of choice or by sharing this episode with your family and friends. And until next time, trust in your gut.